Amen. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is that in so much as I am faithful to your word, that this sermon would not be a word from man, but would be a word from God. And that it would have free course to run into our hearts and into our minds and consciences, and that it would go to work there, and it would produce and yield a fruit uh, of righteousness for your name's sake, and that it would create a culture and a people that pleases your name. So I pray for hungry hearts, receptive hearts. I pray against Satan and all of his ways who would seek to distract us with a thousand things right now to cause us to think about a million, million things that we should not be thinking about and be inattentive to the word. So we rebuke him together. We pray for focus and for thoughtfulness and for hunger and for humility and receptivity and for transformation. So do that, Lord, I pray. And may you be made much of and magnified, and may your word be lifted up and magnified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The question before, the te- before this text this morning is, and kind of the burden of the first few verses as Hugo read, is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So this whole subject of greatness, this subject of success... Uh, is prominent in the early part of this chapter. Which prompted me to ask the question this week is, is how do we define success? Or I could say it to you, how do you define success? For some people, uh, it's a number on a scorecard. It is a grade sheet. It's a bank statement. Perhaps it's the number of children that we have. For others, it may be letters behind their name. Maybe a title or a position Perhaps it's seeing your business thrive, or maybe for some of you, it's just merely seeing it survive, getting into a certain school, winning a particular case, writing or publishing an article or a particular book. It's funny, even as I'm saying that, I can sense that some of you are resonating with some of those things, and yet, and yet all of us are a little bit different. For some of us, maybe success is, is just getting the kids out the door on time, on a certain day. We all have different ideas of, of what it means to be successful. But, but what about for us as a church? And, and what is success for us here? Is it growing numbers? Is it more people in the seats and uh, more programs? Multiple services, multi-site, more baptisms in the tank and more money in the bank, as some people like to say? And, and how should we define success in the church. Is it true that the more people that come and the more they give and the more services we have and, 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 and the, more, the, the more programs we offer that the more successful we are? Is that true? Is that the kind of success that the New Testament envisions for the church? Well, we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew and today we come to chapter 18 where Jesus redefines success or greatness for us, and he puts that in the context, very prominently, of the life of believers 
together in community and what we would call a church, especially in the section of of church discipline that we'll see later. And so the whole context is sort of bathed in this, this, this context of the church. And, and here we see the primacy of church in the life of the believer. And you can search the New Testament high and low, and, and you can look all over the New Testament, and what you'll never see is an unchurched Christian. You just won't see that. And, and that's why we're seeking to create a climate at Heritage that emphasizes both the necessity and the importance of church membership. And, and actually, in reality, we want it to be a, a little bit uneasy for you to in, attend church indefinitely with no plan of joining and, and just sort of just show up and, and just be here. Rather, what we want is people to throw themselves in to the local church, to join that church, and to become a meaningful and contributing part of that body. So a few years ago, a couple years ago, we established a few metrics uh, by which we could ascertain and understand how do we know if, if, if someone, a particular person, is engaging into the community and life of the church. And so we came up with what we think is uh, the, the sort of the five metrics that we really hold dear and very important to us. The first one is, is joining a gospel community group. Because it's very easy to come and just show up at a service. It's harder. It requires more effort to get with eight or ten other Christians on a weekly basis, eat with them, do life with them, be in community, and serve Jesus on mission. So that was one. Number two was serving on a ministry team, was saying, okay, there's so many different ministries here. Which one can I be a part of and apply my gifts to and serve? All this is in our membership uh, curriculum, by the way. The third one is attending Sunday services, including the Lord's Supper, saying, man, we're just going to show up. We're going to be there. When the doors open, we're going to be there no matter what the service is. The fourth is supporting the church financially so it can run and operate and do what it needs to do. And the last one is a commitment to being discipled and discipling others. That, that's huge. Because my guess is for a good number of us that we are either missing one of those two categories. Either we're, we're not currently being discipled by anyone or, or we are not discipling another person. And and it's been said before that each of us as Christians need, needs a Paul in our life to disciple us, mentor us, needs a Barnabas in our life to encourage us, and needs a Timothy in our life that we can pour into and invest in. And so that's a challenge for us as we think about ourselves. So how do we define success in the kingdom of God? I mean, that is really how chapter 18 begins. Notice the question posed to Jesus in verse 1. The question is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers that question by giving us five characteristics of success or greatness. And here they are, verses 1 through 6, humility. Holiness in verses 7 through 9. The third one is compassion in verses 10 through 14. The fourth one is restoration in 15 through 20. And the last one is forgiveness in 21 through 35. And those are five characteristics of success or greatness as defined by Jesus. So we're going to look at those. The first one is found in verses 1 through 6, humility. Now, it's not surprising, if you think back to chapter 17 where we were last week, it's not surprising at all that this is the question that the disciples are asking. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? The reason why I don't think that's a surprising question is 
you just had the transfiguration scene, and Peter, James, and John had just come out and off the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. They were privileged to see Jesus peel back his humanity and give us a, a peek of his glory as God. And then they come down, and there's this you know, miraculous scene where Jesus delivers this demon-possessed child from epilepsy and other things. And, 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 and the disciples are probably asking this question, well, why did Peter, James, and John get to be a part of the, of the transfiguration? Like, what makes them special? So the question naturally arises in 18, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Like, what makes certain people more advanced? Or what makes Peter, James, and John, what gives them special status? So you can kind of see the temptation to ask this question. Who's the greatest? And Jesus responds in verse 2, and he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? Jesus is fundamentally redefining success. Jesus is saying that greatness has nothing to do with proud independence and self-sufficiency. And so what he does is he presents children to them as the model. He's recasting greatness in terms of a humble reliance on another. You think of a child. They're just needy. They're just dependent. They lift their arms. Daddy, hold me. I'm hungry. They cry. They need to be fed. They need to be nourished. And so children are, are just, they're just naturally dependent. That's what a child does. And Jesus says if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, kind of an important thing, right? If we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then we must turn, he says. And that word turn carries the idea of repentance and conversion. We must turn and become like children. So here's the thing that's really sobering about this text. The disciples are saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus flips that on them, and he says, unless you change or unless you turn, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. They're boasting about who's the greatest, and Jesus is saying, I'm not even sure you're in. So you've put the cart way before the horse on this deal. How do you know you're even in the kingdom? This is sobering words for Jesus, from Jesus. So let me just kind of bring this home for a minute. What about you? That word turn, that word change, do you see any, any need for change in, in your life? Or is the, is the only type of change, you know, that kind of occupies your mind, things like dieting and exercise and financial in, investment and changes to maybe some lifestyle things. I mean, things that are good, things that are important, Maybe, but things that are not the most important. You know, maybe they're not the, the greatest of things. What, what kind of changes consume your thoughts throughout the week? How about, how about something like this? How about a desire to get rid of sin? Is, is that a great ambition of your life? Is that something that drives you each and every day? Because look at what Jesus goes on to say in verses 7 through 9. He brings out the second characteristic of greatness, which I'm casting in terms of greatness, in terms of church life, 7 through 9, is that if a church is to be successful and great, it'll be marked by people who are concerned with holiness, 7 through 9. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. 
If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Now Jesus makes a couple of really clear points about sin here. Number one, he says that we are not to cause other people to sin. Man, he gets very clear. And the idea is almost like even children here. So it's like those who are uh, repressed in society, those who are weak, it's very easy to take advantage of them. And Jesus says, you better not do that. You better not cause another person to sin, number one. And number two, the other clear teaching here is that we are not ourselves to be led into sin. We're not to lead ourselves into sin, and we're not to be led into sin. One's passive and one's active. We're not to actively walk in sin, and we're not to passively be led into it by another person. The very clear teaching from Jesus. The word woe in verse 7 is a pronouncement of judgment. And Jesus uses hyperbole here, doesn't he? He uses figurative speech. He says that our holiness is more important than our hand or than our foot or than our eye or than our, any part of our physical body. And, and the thing is this, is that isn't this true that we have become too comfortable with sin? So we play around with it, and our hands touch things they shouldn't touch, and our feet run to places they shouldn't go, and our eyes look at things they shouldn't look at. And Jesus pulls these features out, and he says, he says better to cut that off, using hyperbole, better to cut that off and enter the kingdom of God crippled than hold on to that with all of your heart and all of your lust and end up in hell. Trip Lee, a Christian rapper, put it this way this week. He said, sometimes we treat sin like it's just a crazy friend instead of a cruel master. You know, we all have that friend, right? That we know is kind of messed up and we don't really, really trust them, but we're still their friend and they're just kind of crazy and, and we just say, oh man, he's crazy. And that's how we kind of view sin. Oh, well, that's just crazy, you know? That's that crazy part of me that, that kind of comes out every once in a while. No, it's not a crazy part of you that kind of comes out every once in a while. It is a cruel taskmaster that will ruin your life. It's not a crazy friend. It's not a friend at all. It's a profound enemy. Now, I, in various times of your life, maybe you're stirred up to these realities and you say, man, I just want to fight my sin. I want to fight my sin. And for some of you, you just get defeated in that process. You're, you're trying, you're fighting, you're engaging, you're going to work, and then you get tired, you get battle-weary, and you just feel like you're not getting anywhere, and so it's discouraging. So I just want to encourage you with a couple of things. Number one, just some resources on just how to fight sin. A couple of things here. I just want to encourage you to pick up one of these books that, on the screen there. One is called The Mortification of Sin by a Puritan, John Owen, written in the 1600s, but it's been modernized and written in an easier way, and I just encourage you to read that. It's just such a profound and helpful work. And the other one is Chris Lungard, which is really sort of a, a, a rewritten version of mortification of sin in very, very modern language, and that is The Enemy Within. And it's got application and a study guide and other things that go with that. So, because I realize that some of you may feel defeated in your battle against sin, and I just want to encourage you, in that book, The Mortification of Sin, here's what John Owen says. Okay, and just give you whet your appetite, a little taste for the mortification of sin. He says this, John Owen says, He can make the dry, parched ground of my soul become a pool, my thirsty, barren heart springs of water. Yes, 
He can make this habitation of dragons, this heart so full of filthy lust and fiery temptations, to be a place of bounty and fruitfulness unto himself. That's such a great word. Because there's sometimes you just look at your life and you think, man, I'm just, it's just eaten up with sin. And how am I ever going to get to a better spot? And Owen says, it will come. And God can take all of that filthy lust and all those temptations and he can make that into a beautiful place unto God. Hey, God is able to do that. And we should take fresh hope that the sin that has so often defeated us, it actually can be conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you. Like you're not destined to do that for the rest of your life. God can give you the grace. He can help you kill that besetting sin, that habitual, that problematic, that, that dangerous, that hurtful, that harmful, that destructive sin that is hurting you on a weekly basis. He, you can kill that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news for us? We're not fatalistic. We're not sitting here this morning saying, well, I'm just destined for this for the rest of my life. No, you're not. Not, with, not as long as you have the Holy Spirit of God, the very power of God at work in you. So take fresh hope. Again, John Owen says this. He says, put your faith on Christ for the killing of sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust dead at your feet. Isn't that awesome? And that's true for the Christian. That's happening. So Romans 8.13 says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. If by whom? By the Spirit. So can you get up in the morning and just kind of do this on your own? Can anybody here say, man, I can conquer that on my own without, outside of the power of the Spirit? Nope, right? So every morning, but we get up and we say, I have the Spirit of God at work in me. Therefore, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. So that's hope for us. So success then is about winning the battle of holiness by the grace of God. And success for us as a church is about doing that collectively. A successful church is not a church on an ever-expanding quest to get more people through the door or money in the bank. But success for the church is to help the ones that we have grow in holiness and hear it, make it to heaven. If we just get you all to heaven and you all get us as pastors to heaven, then we've won. That's success. Just finish the race. Just be faithful to Jesus all the way to the end. And that's what we're going for. I mean, it's very simple. Very, very simple. And that's our mission. Holiness in the life of its members is the second mark of a successful church. The third is, is, is clear. The third is, is a characteristic of success here is compassion. This is how disciples are to be marked by compassion. Verses 10 through 14. And Jesus tells this wonderful little story here to illustrate God's care. Look at verse 12. He says, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So it's, it's, the, 
it's the very nature of God's care to extend itself for those who are wandering off and are in danger of being lost. And the implication of this is that we should emulate God's care for one another. So if God is going to stop everything that he's doing at that moment to go after the lost sheep, shouldn't we not also do the same? When someone wanders off, when someone is veering off the path, we stop whatever we're doing, and if one is wandering away, we go after them. Because we love God and we emulate him. And that means, just very practically, don't despise the pastor or the friend who calls you on the phone and says, I haven't seen you in a while. The, the fact is, because it's not normal for a sheep to just be wandering off on their own, away from the fold and away from the shepherds. When did that become normal? That's not normal. And yet we're living in a day and age where Christians, hear me, is, are becoming increasingly undisciplined in their commitment to the local church. It's shocking. And this week I read an article about declining church attendance on Patheos. And here's what it said. Here's, here's, here's what the piece said. It said, We've all heard how church attendance is declining in America. Fervent believers are becoming irregular in church attendance. Ask any pastor if this is happening. When my father was growing up in the Bible Belt, you attended church three times a week. 52 weeks a year. You did not miss church unless you had a fever of 102. <laughs> if you were traveling on Sunday, you were expected to visit a local congregation. There was no skipping a Sunday, no sleeping in. Church attendance was the barometer of spiritual health. But my generation relaxed, this attendance, relaxed the attendance rules a bit, especially if we had to travel or work over the weekend. But, but we still made it to church almost every Sunday. But our children have become even more casual about weekly worship attendance. According to recent surveys, young families are only attending church 1.6 times a month. That's sad. That's really, really, really sad. And it, you know what? And here's the other thing. It's unthinkable for the elder generation. Like there are people in this room right now that do not get that. All right? I, I've talked to them. I hear them. They are here every moment that the doors are open and they look at some of us as younger kids, part of my generation, and they say, I don't get you guys. I do not understand that. Our generation, my generation, the millennial generation is irresponsible largely and very feckless. Irresponsible. Just very lazy. We tend to be very, very, very lazy. And, and we think we're entitled. And yet we're big dreamers. Oh, man, we are big dreamers. Man, we're going to kill it. We're going to knock it out. We, we got all these great ideas, all this ambition, all these startups, all these businesses. Man, we're killing it on the marketing scene, and, and we're selling stuff, and, and we're big time, man, and we're innovators and, and all this stuff. But we can't get out of bed and worship God. What a joke. And the older generation looks at this and says, like, did... They, why do you keep making excuses? Well, we have kids. It's just hard to get them out the door. Do you think they didn't have kids? Do you think the older generation didn't bring all their four or five kids to church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Oh, but, but, but we're entitled to make all these excuses. Can't do it. It's too hard. It's just too hard. So I'm just saying there's an older generation that doesn't get us. They don't understand that. They can't identify with that. And honestly, 
I think they're right. They, we're busted, all right? So let's just admit it. We're busted. They're, they're probably right. They have called us out. They've called us to the carpet, and they've said, you guys are coming up with excuses. So here's the thing. is just as we think about this, coming to church, think about this, once a month, or let me say this is what, twice in like eight weeks is a sign that you're probably just generally unwell spiritually. If, if, it's, if, it, if it's just like that for you, I mean, how can, because here's the thing, how can the church care for you if you're not here? And here's the other thing, how can you care for somebody else if you're not here? Like, aren't you supposed to be looking after the concerns of other people as well? So we're to be marked by love and concern for one another. Jesus says, if one sheep veers away, we go after them. But what is your responsibility in that process? Anything less than that is presumptuous Christianity at best. I mean, do you think that we can just sort of walk through the Christian life, just me and Jesus? Man, I'll listen to my podcast, I'll download some sermons, some preachers, and I'll listen to some worship music, and that'll be me and Jesus' time, and I can make it through the Christian life. You are greatly mistaken if you think you can do that. You can't. You can't. And you are not meant to do that. And, and furthermore, it's just complete disobedience to God's Word. The New Testament knows nothing of unchurched Christianity. Nothing. So the fourth characteristic then is restoration, verses 18, uh, verses 15 through 20. And in this text, this is pretty powerful stuff here, is that we are called to restore one another. So listen to these words. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, then tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, then treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, paraphrase, as a non-Christian. Okay, so this is the concern for others that we just talked about, that works itself out in our corporate life together as a church. And so Jesus tells us how we are to confront sin in the church. So is this the plan that Jesus has for confronting sin? Lash out in anger. Or how about this one? Um, Hey, let's get on the phone and call everybody we know and let them know what so-and-so is up to in their sinning life. No. No. So there's a process here that Jesus says that we should follow for the good of the person who's in sin and for the good of the church. In other words, we are to be measured. We are to be compassionate. And here's a huge one. We're to always be cognizant of our own sin. And so Jesus gives us a process, and he talks about what we call church discipline. Now, church discipline may sound really, really harsh and unloving in our culture, But when you understand that the aim of discipline is restoration, then you get a different perspective on it. Okay? So when we talk about church discipline, we're really thinking about two things. Number one, we're thinking about formative church discipline. And number two, corrective church discipline. And this might be a new category for some of you, so let me just bring some clarity here. There's a a massive difference between formative church discipline and corrective church discipline. And both are clearly taught in Scripture. Formative church discipline... Is, is, is what we all need. It's what we all endure. So um, let, let's just admit right off the bat that we all need formative discipline for shaping, okay? 
And I'll explain what that is in a second. None of us are perfect or finished products. Now, we may need to be inspired and nurtured and healed, but we may also need to be corrected and challenged and sometimes even broken. So let's just first admit the need and not pretend that we're just as we should be. We're not. Now, once we've come to that admission, I should point out that much of church discipline is, is positive. So this is what we call formative discipline. It is, it's the stake, right, that, that you put on a tree to help it grow straight. It is the braces that you put on your child's teeth to make them straight. It's the training wheels on the bicycle. It's the repeated comments to your children, honey, keep your mouth closed when you're talking. It's the post-it notes that we put all over our house to remind ourselves what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we call formative discipline, and this is the kind of discipline that takes place in the church. It's not a negative matter. It's not. It's, it's very positive. It's, it's what we need. It's the formation. So it would be like, the difference between formative discipline and corrective discipline would be like what, uh, what, what, what PT and I were talking about last night. It would be like the child who has his toothpaste, and he always takes off the, tooth, the lid of the toothpaste, and he just leaves it off, and the end of it dries up, and it gets crusty, and you got to tell him, hey, all the time, you know, you need to screw that back on, and don't get toothpaste all over the sink. So that's formative. You're just constantly going after it every day, every day. And they seem like you keep repeating the same thing over and over. But corrective discipline is when you say, hey, honey, you need to put the toothpaste lid back on the, on the toothpaste. And your child picks it up and says, no, and throws it at you. Okay, now we might need some corrective discipline. So there's a difference here between formative and corrective. And when it comes to corrective discipline, which is what Jesus is getting at here, Jesus lays out some steps in the process for confronting and restoring a brother. So we don't just get to do whatever we want to do. So when a person falls into sin, right, we don't just get on the phone and call everybody we know and let everybody in the church know that so-and-so is whatever doing such and such a thing. No. The first thing we do is step one is private correction. The first thing we do when a brother and sister is caught in sin is we speak directly and privately with that individual. And the hope is that such direct and private speech will be used by God, praise God, to turn that person's heart from sin and cause them to repent. Now, if that effort is unsuccessful, Jesus says a few others may be brought in. So step two then is what we call small group intervention. And that's where Jesus allows us to bring more one or two more in for wisdom, to bring wisdom into the situation, and, I think this is the other clear thing, to heighten the level of concern for the individual who's caught in sin. To say, in other words, hey man, this isn't just Mike who's concerned about you, but Mike and like five or six others that really love you and spend time with you, we're we're all collectively super concerned here. And we want to let you know, man, we're praying for you, but we want to see you turn from this. This is destructive. This is hurting you. And we're, we're, we're asking you together, repent, turn from this. And so that small group intervention in step three, Jesus says that if that does not work, if that fails, then we are to tell it to the whole church. So this is serious. So that the whole church can collectively what? Pray and then call their fellow friend and fellow church member that, they, that covenanted with that church to repentance. And if someone refuses, Jesus says, to listen even to the whole church, 
then we are to proceed to step four, which is what we call excommunication, which is treat them as a pagan or tax collector. In other words, we excommune them. They are no longer a part of the communion. The, the community is that we ask them to step out of the community because we're not saying that they're not a Christian. What we're saying is they're, they're not giving any reason to make us think they are. In other words, if you continue to live in persistent, unrepentant sin, and, 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 and one person has called you to repentance, and several others have called you to repentance, and the entire church has called you to repentance, and they've prayed over you, they've loved you, they've served you, and you're still unwilling to listen to that, then we're not God, so we can't say you're not a Christian, but we, what we can say is that you're giving no evidence of making us think that you are. I mean, you're not living in any way that looks like a Christian who is marked by repentance and faith. But it needs to be said here that even in this step, okay, excommunication has a redemptive goal, which is restoration. Right? So you don't ever kick someone out in, 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 in rage or in anger or as a means of getting back. What you're doing is you're, you're removing them to say, hey, like we're letting you know that you're in a really dangerous position and we're not sure that you're a Christian and the whole purpose of that is so that they get serious about it and realize, wow, I've been removed from a community. Maybe I'm really not a Christian. And then they feel that, and then God uses that in their heart, and then they come back. And if they repent, praise God. They are welcome to come back to the church. And that's how this works. So now, of course, to do this well as a church, all the other things that we've already talked about has to be in place, right? The characteristics of humility, unless you're humble like a child, and the characteristics of holiness. Because if you don't value holiness, nobody cares about this stuff anyway. And then compassion, when one sheep runs away, we go and get them. So all these things sort of are related to one another. And only then in that context can we work towards restoration. Well, then finally, the last characteristic in chapter 18 is, is that making a church great or successful is a culture of forgiveness. And I love how this passage ends with this parable that Jesus just tells and, and makes up about the unforgiving servant. Jesus was such a good teacher. And Jesus concludes with a parable uh, called the unforgiving servant. And the context here, what I want you to see, is that Matthew 18, 15 through 20, the context of 15 through 20 was conflict resolution, right? What we just discussed. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you have a problem with somebody, work it out. If someone sins against you, here's the thing. Go and resolve it. D don't just sit on that. Do something about it. Sitting back and doing nothing is not an option for Christians. And so the point is, we must never tire of forgiving and, and repenting and seeking to repair our relationships. And, and when, wherever a relationship has cooled or has been weakened in any way, it's always our responsibility to repair it, to say, hey, I want to get with you. I want to pray with you. I want to I relate with you. I want to talk with you. I want to fix this. And so we work on it. We try to repair it. And as Christians, we're in the relationship repair business because we understand that we're sinful people, but we're constantly having to repair relationships, and it's hard. And people tend to cower under that. They say, it's too hard. I can't be bothered with it. I'm not going to spend my time with it. There's too much drama. I don't want it. So I'll just ignore that person which is not a Christian attitude. The Christian says, hey, this is really hard. This is really difficult. I can hardly talk to this guy. It seems really, really difficult, but you know what? I'm going to do it anyway because it honors God. It pleases Jesus, and it protects the church. And so therefore, I'm going to do it. 
And so we're in the relationship repair business. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds us responsible to fix it. Letting relationships fall apart is not an option. Romans 12 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So that's our calling. And that's the context of Matthew 18. A healthy church is marked by a culture of forgiveness. Now, now let me be really clear on what the Bible means by forgiveness. The word forgive occurs 143 times in the New Testament. And what we see in every instance is that it's a, it's a decision. It's an act of my will. It's a choice. So let me give you a definition. Forgiveness is a decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured me. Forgiveness is a decision to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured me. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. That's, that's good. Then Winston Smith says it this way, who works for a Christian counseling foundation. He says, forgiveness is releasing another from the penalty of sin so that the relationship can be restored. Forgiveness means letting go of your right to punish another and choosing through the power of God's love to hold on to the person rather than their offense. Isn't that good? So redemptive, so helpful. Does anybody in here need to hold on to a person rather than their offense? Can you let let that offense go? And can you just hold on to that person? Because isn't that person more important than how you feel? Isn't that person more important than the offense? But Peter seems to be hung up here. And I think Peter is actually tripped up by verse 15. Because remember back in verse 15 what Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I think Peter's tripped up by that. The reason why I think that is because he comes to Jesus in verse 21 and he says, Lord, but I just got this question. So here's my question, Lord. How often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? So you said in verse 15, go and, and, and do this thing in verse 15, right? If your brother sins, tell him your fault between him. But how many times do I have to do this, Lord? And you can see it's this kind of complaint. I mean, it appears that Peter is troubled by the implication of Jesus' teaching. It's like he's saying, okay, Jesus, one time, all right, whatever, fine. Two times, three times, maybe four, you know, four times I'll forgive a guy if he does this. But at a certain point, Jesus, you and I both know enough is enough, right? I mean, this guy keeps, he's a recidivist. He keeps doing the same thing over and over and over again. And you, you, Jesus, you have to have a quota here, right? I mean, there's got to be a time when you just say, enough's enough, I'm not forgiving you anymore, you're a complete jerk, and I'm not talking about it. And, and besides Jesus, people are going to take advantage of me. So, so here's my question. How long does the forgiveness thing really go on for? And, and that's a legitimate question. And you know why it's a legitimate question? Because R.T. France says, who's a Matthean scholar, says that the Pharisees required forgiveness, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, only required forgiveness up to three times. That's it. Three times. That was the big high standard from the Pharisees, which is kind of crazy because the Pharisees were like super meticulous, and they had a cap of three times. So if you upset me three times, that's it. I don't have to forgive you anymore after three times. And so Peter's got this thing in the back of his mind, and he says, so Jesus, 
how many times do I have to do this? How often do I forgive my brother? Because in Peter's mind, he's thinking, okay, because I'm really holy and really spiritual, I'll just double the requirement of the Pharisees, which is three. I'll make it six, and then I'll add one, seven. Like up to seven times, Lord? I'm really spiritual. I'm doubling the Pharisees and adding one. And Jesus responds to this, and it's, it's almost humorous. I mean, he's like, I'll double the requirement of the Pharisees, and I bet Jesus would be really impressed with me. How often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him like up to seven times, Lord? Expecting Jesus to say, whoa, Peter, whoo, man, you're really knocking it out. You are on fire, man. You talk about a Mr. Godly right here, seven times. This guy's willing to forgive a guy seven times. Peter, you get the, you get the award, man. You are, you're it, man. You are, you've arrived. Is that what Jesus says? No. Jesus says, I do not say seven times, but let's start here. How about like, I don't know, 70 times seven? Which again is a figure of speech. So now help me out here. What's the math on 70 times seven? What is it? 490, right? 490 times And the point isn't, so let's just kind of keep a tab going. And when we get to 489, we're like, just one more. And then 490, bam, I'm done. No more forgiveness. Got it, got it done. No, I mean, so if you got a tab running, you've got a problem. Jesus is not talking about 490. He's saying the point is you cannot put a limit on forgiveness. And then he tells this story to illustrate the point. And the story, verse 23 says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, understand, this is a parable, and it's a made-up story, but it's intended to teach some very, very important things about forgiveness. Verse 24, When he began to settle, one was brought into him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent, just to be clear, is not a skill. A talent is a currency. One talent equals, this is hefty, 20 years of labor. So that means for some of you in here, you don't have a talent left to give. 20 years of labor. And this guy owed 10,000 talents. So that's 200,000 years worth of labor. Okay? Obviously ridiculous. Way out of his league. So the point is, way out of reach. The amount owed is completely unpayable. It's not possible. You would never come close. So verse 25. Since he was not able to pay, yeah, I'd say so. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. In other words, we're going to take everything you own, all your assets, because that's the only way we can sort of pay this thing up. Verse 26. So the servant falls on his knees. This is the same word, by the way, proskuneo for worship. The servant worships. He falls to his knees and he puts his face to the ground, which, by the way, that should be our posture more times than not in worship. Not this cavalier thing that we talked about last week. He puts his face to the ground and he prostrates himself in an act of reverence. So the servant falls down and he implores him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Which, folks, by the way, that's a, that's a completely outrageous claim. He can't pay everything. It's 10,000 talents. But he's just saying whatever he can say out of his heart. I'll pay everything. 
He couldn't get close to paying it. It's impossible. But here's the thing that will blow you away. Verse 27, this is the gospel. Verse 27 is the gospel. The, servant, the servant's master took pity on him. Why? Why should he have pity on this guy? He took pity on him and he canceled the debt and he let him go. And at that point, you should be reading Matthew and you should gasp. <gasps> you should be reading Matthew and you should be gripped to your heart and you should just be like, <gasps> what? You mean he paid his debt? He canceled the debt? Because this is what God has done for us. And verse 27 should lead you to worship. Because you owe more than 10,000 talents worth of debt to God. And God erased it in Jesus because he slaughtered his son. And you should go, oh, what? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. But Jesus washed it white as snow. He washed it white as snow. He did that for you. Can you believe that? Can you? Does that move you anymore? You don't deserve that. What an amazing text. Well, I wish I could say that the story ended there, but it doesn't. This is sad. Look at verse 28. But, but when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And that's just chump change, by the way, folks. That's three months' pay. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and he pleaded with him, same words, by the way, same words. He proskuneoed, he worshiped he, at his feet, and he said, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Does those words sound familiar? Exact same words the first servant spoke when he granted forgiveness. But when he hears these words, what does he do? Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay his debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, seething, I'm sure, angry, I'm sure, sure. And he said, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The words are rhetor rhetorical, are they, are they not? Should, he says, should you have shown, shouldn't you have shown mercy? And the answer is, yes, I should have. I should have, but I did not. I knew it was right, but I didn't do it anyway. And Jesus says in John 13, 17, I love this. I just love this word. Jesus says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Not if you hear them. Just hearing words, just hearing what we're supposed to do. Happy are you if you do what you know you are supposed to do. Amen. I knew it, but I didn't do it. That's the point. It's tragic. 
And, 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 that, and what I want to say to us this morning, is that true for anyone this morning? You know what Jesus is calling you to do. There's that guy right now in this church or that girl right now in this church, and you don't want to forgive them or that somebody else in your family, and you won't want to forgive them. And Jesus says, happier are you if you know what to do and you do it. And you do it. This is such a good story. Jesus is such a clear teacher. So how does it end? Verse 34, in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Which, by the way, it was 10,000 talents. He can't pay it back. So guess what? Eternity, forever of paying it off because he wouldn't forgive so he's not able to pay it off and, and do this. Put a circle, a square, a triangle, whatever you want, highlight it in your Bible around verse 35. Circle it up. Here it is. This is the point. This is the conclusion of what we've read. Here it is. So also, he says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So scary words in the Bible. Scary words. Jesus says, here's the thing, if you don't forgive that guy or that girl or that person that wounded and hurt and, and messed you up, if you do not forgive them, Jesus says you'll be like the unforgiving servant, you'll be like that person in the parable, and he will throw you into prison to be tortured forever and ever, which is very clear, which is hell forever for us. I, mean, I heard a guy say one time, Russ Moore, Dr. Moore was preaching on forgiveness, and he got done, and he said, here's the thing, is that, like, is that this is serious. If you choose not to forgive, God will send you to hell for unrepentant sin. Because he, it, this, the reason why this is so serious is because God has wiped away our sin, an infinite debt. And if we're unwilling to wipe away some guy's thing that he did against me, we have no understanding of the gospel. And if we have no understanding of the gospel in that sense, and we totally just make a mockery of what God has done for us through Jesus on the cross. And if we do that, the point is, is that we don't deserve life. We deserve to be punished for that. And I remember Russ Moore was preaching a sermon, and this guy walked up at the end of his sermon, just, just angry. And he looked at him, and he said, he said, Dr. Moore, he was like 6'5", big, tall guy, military guy, was in the, he was a Marine and he was just a bad dude, bad dude. And he walked up and he said, are you saying? He said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, I fought in Vietnam. And he said, he said, I hate the Vietnamese people. He said, are you telling me, are you telling me that I have to forgive those people? Is that what you're telling me? And he's like, and if I choose not to, are you telling me that God will damn me for that? He goes, what do you say about a guy like me? He goes, what will happen to me? He goes, do I have to forgive them? And Dr. Moore said, he looked down here, like, looks up at him, and he just said, just this overwhelming sense of the Spirit just came on me. And I said, well, there's always hell. <laughs> now, we chuckle at that, but the, the reality is, Russ Moore's right. And you know what happened to that guy? It was like he said he turned a spigot on. Tears flooding down his face. And he broke. And he realized at that moment, I have to forgive 
because I don't want to go to hell. And Jesus isn't lying. And this is serious. This is serious. And so that verse, so, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now hear that word, heart. Jesus says that an ongoing unwillingness to forgive will cost you your soul. God will treat you the same way you treat others. So let me just speak in your life. How about that person you're not forgiving? Do you really want God to treat you the way that you're treating them in your heart? Is that the way you want God to treat you? Listen, an entrenched refusal to forgive is a sign that you do not know God's forgiveness. Your behavior reveals the ugly condition of your heart, and that is bad news for some of us. Okay, so, so with that bad news in mind, what's the good news of this parable? The good news is this, is do you see yourself here? So see, see you, you are the one here in this parable that, can, that has a debt that cannot be paid. And before a holy God, we owe a debt that cannot be paid. And that means our only hope, our only chance is if God does the unthinkable and pays our debt. And so here's the gospel. This is the gospel. Here's the big point. What this parable is teaching is that your life should be completely altered by that reality that God paid a debt that you owed, that he did not have to pay, and he sent his son to the cross to crush him to pay the debt that you owed in order that you could have a reconciled relationship with him. That's the good news of this parable. And what this parable is teaching is that your life should be so completely altered by that fundamental reality that, you, that it becomes easy for you to forgive everybody. Easy for you to forgive. Understand what God has done for you. Throw your arms around all that God has done for you in Christ and do that for the rest of your life. And when you are transformed by that message, forgiveness will be real easy. Real easy. This week I read an article from James McDonald and he mentioned four excuses that people give for not forgiving. And I think they're spot on. I mean, they're really, really good. Number one, he said, it, people will say like, well, I can't forgive because the hurt's too big. If you're unwilling to forgive, here's my question is, what's your plan? So do you want to carry around all that hurt for the rest of your life? Because here's the thing, the bigger the hurt, the more urgent the need is to deal with it. There, there's no hurt too big to forgive. Think about what we've done to God. And yet he has forgiven us so much. So C.S. Lewis has this, this word to say, so good. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. So I, whatever you do, man, it cannot be worse than what I've done to Jesus. So I'll, I'll let it go, man. I'll let it go. Another excuse people give is, well, you know, time will heal. Just I'll just ignore it. Time will heal. You know, I, I'll ignore it, do some other things in my life. And over time, it'll kind of go away. And I just want to say, if you think like that, just make note of this. Time will not heal it. Time will not heal it. You'll run into somebody five years later and they'll poke that section of you and they'll start oozing out bitterness and anger. You've got to deal with it. Something divine and supernatural has to occur to bring healing. You need God's help, not time. Time isn't going to do it. Number three, another excuse is people say, well, I'll forgive when the other person comes and they tell me that they're sorry. Now, now don't be confused here. Repentance is a prerequisite to final forgiveness and a restored relationship. But God still expects us to have a forgiving heart. I mean, look at verse 35 again. So also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your what? Heart. 
Now, does that, does that imply that the guy's come to him? Nope, not necessarily. But in your heart, you can forgive. Hear me. If you are waiting for them to come, just hear me. They're not coming. They're not going to do it. They're not coming. They will not come to you. It's not going to happen. It, they're not coming. So you have to have a disposition in your heart to forgive them. Number four, you say, well, I can't forgive because they'll just do something else to me. To which my response is, yeah, they might. They might do something else, and that's what you do to God all the time. You do something else to God, and something else to God, and something else to God, over and over and over, and he keeps forgiving you no matter what. Of course they'll hurt you again, but that doesn't give you the right to not forgive. And besides, the fallout of not forgiving is tragic. So let me just ask you this. What happens when you don't forgive? People get hurt. Big time. Jot this down. Un- unforgiveness punishes everyone in its path. Unforgiveness punishes everyone in its path. It's like a tornado that rips through a city and everybody gets hurt by it. Just consider the consequences just from this story. Just this story. The first thing that we see is physical breakdown. Notice in verse 28 that that this unforgiving man resorts to violence. He starts choking a guy. He's like, he's like, hey, he, he doesn't go up to the guy and he's like, hey, you know, Bro, brother, can we talk? You know, I've got some concerns. I just want to share my heart with you a little bit. I'm worried about something. No. He goes up and he starts choking this guy. Look at the consequences of sin. The second thing is relational breakdown. I mean, this is the guy he used to be friends with. He was friends with the guy in verse 28. But now he's killing him and he's choking his throat. And, and at one point, he gave the guy money, so they must have been friends. But now he's completely wrecked the relationship. In addition, his co-workers have lost all respect for him, get verse 31. And ultimately, he's lost the respect of his boss, of his master, verse 32. And his master says, you wicked servant. So he's ruined every relationship in his life. He's friendless. So he's, he's, exhorted, he's, he's gone to the extent of violence, and, and he'll probably be jailed for that. And, and now he's lost all of his friends, so he's effectively just completely ruining his life. The third thing is spiritual breakdown. Physical breakdown, relational breakdown. The third is spiritual breakdown. Unforgiveness is spiritual suicide. When we choose not to forgive, we choose spiritual death. Notice the phrase in verse 34, deliver him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is ever, forever and ever and ever to pay all that debt. That would take an eternity. So hell is in view here and the consequences of not forgiving are eternal. So, so do you see how destructive unforgiveness is? It destroys a person's life. It will ruin your life. It will ruin your family. It will ruin our church if we are not a forgiving people. And ultimately, folks, it will ruin your soul, verse 35. So these are sobering words for Jesus. Here's the thing. Here's the, here's the whole chapter, wrapping it all up right now. Jesus redefines success. Totally. And he says that success is defined by humility, holiness, compassion, restoration, and forgiveness. And that should mark you as Christians, and that should mark our church. That's it. Humility, holiness, compassion, restoration, and forgiveness. Now, here's what I want to do as we close. My burden, here's my big burden for this sermon. Among other things, my burden is this, is that I want you to have a heightened concern and a commitment to the local church. And I mean on these variables. Humble, I want us to be humble as a church. I want us to be holy as a church. I want us to be compassionate as a church. I want us to be restorative as a church. I want us to be forgiving as a church. I don't want to be a big mega church. 
I want us to be a church marked by these five things. Is that too much to ask? I don't want more and more people on the doors here. I don't want more and more money. We've got enough to take care of. We're having a hard enough time just trying to walk in holiness ourselves, aren't we? So if we can just take care of ourselves, then we're doing the main thing. So here, here, here that's my burden, and, I, and especially for millennials. You younger generation, you're with me. Come on, we've got to get our stuff together. We've got to get our game going. We are, we're, we're, we're just sidelined because we're, just, we're so lackadaisical about stuff. We've got to engage and throw ourselves into the local church and involve ourselves. And I want to close with these words from Kevin Young from an article he wrote this week entitled, Stop the Revolution, Join the Plotters. This is so good. It's on the screen. Here it is. Last paragraph. He says, It's sexy among young people, my generation, to talk about ditching institutional religion and starting a revolution of real Christ followers living in real community without the confines of the church. That's cool. All right? But, he says, besides being unbiblical, such notions of churchless Christianity are unrealistic. It's immaturity, actually. Like the newly engaged couple who think romance preserves the marriage when the couple celebrating their golden anniversary really knows that it's the institution of marriage that preserves the romance. Without the God-given habit of corporate worship and the God-given mandate of corporate accountability, we will not prove faithful over the long haul. We, what we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plotting visionaries. That's my dream for the church. Multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting consistency. Love that. Love that. Don't want a big church. Don't want multi-site. Don't want cool. Don't want sexy. Don't want any of that stuff. Want faithful. Want faithful. That's what we want. Church, that's the goal. And, and we want to produce and maintain that type of church. So millennials is my last word to you, my generation. We're a generation of dreamers. We want to do big things for God. But here's the thing. Before you, you can go out and change the world, why don't you start with just changing a diaper? I'm serious. All this dreaming, man. All, but, but here's the thing. God wants us in the faithful things, the small things. If you can't show up in the small things, if you can't show up, if you can't serve, if you can't pray, then you might as well lay down your big dreams of doing great things for God. If you can't, you can't just show up and do the small, small thing. God, Listen, God isn't asking for your big dreams. He's asking for your faithfulness. That's what he's wanting. Just, I just get tired of it. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the millennial dream. I'm just, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of it. We need faithfulness. And I'm calling us to that faithfulness. So I say with Kevin Young, let's stop the revolution. Let's join the plotters. We have a bunch of faithful plotters in this church. Okay, you need to get mentored by them. And older folks in here who have lived this life and have shown up at every service and done the hard thing, please grab some younger folks and disciple them. Because I'll just say, out of humility, we need it. We need it. We need it desperately. And God will be pleased by it. It honors God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We just need help. We confess that. We ask you for your grace, your mercy. And we want to be a faithful, faithful church. Uh, On these five things, we want to be humble and holy and compassionate. We want to be restorative and we want to be forgiving. I pray that you would make us into that body, into that type of people for your glory. 
So as we go on into the next year, um, we're, we're going after the right things. And I pray that, that, that what we're building here over the next decade is, is a redwood, a big, strong, powerful tree that holds up. And that's my prayer for us as a church, Lord. We won't be a mushroom that springs up overnight, that, that grows real fast and it looks real cool, but it gets knocked over as soon as the first storm blows in. We'll be a redwood, a big, strong, thick, robust church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand quick.